What's up, and welcome back to the sportsball.com podcast. This is episode five of season two, and I am your host, Jackson Williams. And oh man, has this been a long week of sports. My Golden State Warriors falling apart. The Eastern Conference and the NBA got stronger. The NFL playoff picture is becoming clear. MLB free agency is about to kick into high gear. And the combination of all of that has just absolutely wrecked my sleep schedule. I mean, I'm a mess. That and daylight savings time has just killed me this, this week. And that's why this podcast is being recorded on a Friday instead of the Monday that I intended to record it on. But so be it. With all that being said, I think I've got a pretty good pod for you today. It might be great. Who knows? But with that said, let's just jump into it and start with the NBA. So, like I mentioned last week, the situation in Minnesota with the Timberwolves was just clearly a disaster. A mess. A ticking time bomb waiting to explode. And uh, for some context here, in case you missed last week's episode, this Minnesota Timberwolves team was dead in the water before the season even started. It stood no chance of having any sustained success this season. The reason it was doomed was because the team's best player, Jimmy Butler, requested a trade before the season even started. He wanted to go to a team where he could be the clear-cut best player. He was trying to execute his pre-agency, as it's called, by determining his location, by expressing his desire to re-sign with teams and pick his own destination. That didn't work. And not because he didn't draw interest, because he did. But because the Timberwolves coach, slash GM, slash president, Tom Thibodeau, had no interest in trading him whatsoever, because he, Jimmy Butler, was the heartbeat of the team and the perfect player for Tibbs' system. It was his second time on two different teams playing with Coach Tibbs. So, the Timberwolves held on to Jimmy Butler for the first 13 games. They went 4-9, they didn't win a single road game, and they were 14th seed in the Western Conference. And funny as it is, even though the Timberwolves weren't playing well, Butler was. It seemed like he was thriving in the uncomfortable situation he created for himself and for the team. He was averaging 21.3 points per game, 5.2 rebounds per game, 4.3 assists per game on 47% shooting and 37.8% shooting from three. All of those numbers across the board were well above his career averages. His 21.3 points, five points above. Rebounds, just 0.3. Assists, nearly one more whole assist a game. 2% better shooting from the field, 3% better shooting from three. He was just a better overall player for some reason. Carl Anthony Towns, though, a man who people thought would, or I guess a couple years ago, I guess, because not now, it's very clear that this is the wrong opinion now, but a couple years ago, Carl Anthony Towns was viewed as a man who might have a better career than Anthony Davis, the superstar big man for the New Orleans Pelicans. But Carl Anthony Towns, during these first three, 13 games, just looked like he wanted to break down and cry every single second he played. He looked like he hated playing basketball. He looked like... Instead of going to work at a job he loved, he was going to work at a job that was going to be the death of him, <laughs> that he wanted to just quit every day he walked into that building. And I, I know I called him soft in last week's episode, and I still think he is, of the NBA players, one of the softer NBA players, but he was clearly bugged by this whole Jimmy Butler situation. And it just became very apparent that in order to get this team to do anything, anything at all, besides just suck and be awful in the, in the Western Conference... Jimmy had to be traded. And frankly, in my opinion, it was embarrassing that it took as long as it did. 
He should have not played a single game for the Wolves this year. That chemistry situation was just an abject disaster. There's no other other way to put it. It was just awful. Just, I mean, it was a spectacle to, to be held to see. It was just because the entertainment value there. Because it was sometimes it's fun to see disasters. It's why people look over when they see a car crash because they can't help. This the Minnesota Timberwolves were the equivalent of rubbernecking a car accident in the NBA. But they just ended up trading. And that happened a week ago, early on last Saturday morning. All the rumors and dysfunction came to a head when Butler was finally shipped out, ending his time in Minnesota and his second stint with head coach Tom Thibodeau. According to sources, according to Adrian Wojnarowski and all the other NBA insiders, there was a three-way bidding war down to the very end for Jimmy Butler. That bidding war was between the Houston Rockets, the New Orleans Pelicans, and the Philadelphia 76ers. And all three of those teams, really, made sense as a landing spot for Jimmy. The Houston Rockets, they needed scoring. As Chris Paul and James Harden, their overall numbers this entire season have both dropped significantly. Now, James Harden has been spectacular these last two games, but Chris Paul still looks a little low-key washed, but... I'll just push that out of the way. And their Carmelo Anthony edition didn't exactly pan out, as just yesterday it was announced that he had played his last game as a Houston Rocket. Because Chris Paul may be low-key washed, but James um, Carmelo Anthony, high-key washed. Just straight-up washed. Should probably retire. But that's besides the point. He was a good fit in Houston because that big three of Jimmy Butler, Chris Paul, and James Harden would have been pretty good. Jimmy Harden, or I'm getting... All the fucking names mixed up. Jimmy Butler is one of the best two-way players in the NBA, meaning he can play great on offense and great on defense, and that is something that Chris Paul can do, but his offense is starting to fade, and his defense is what it is because he's five foot eight. James Harden is just not a good defensive player, but you add Jimmy Butler to that, you add the tenacity and ferocity that he brings with him. That could become a very solid defensive team. The New Orleans Pelicans, they needed to add scoring from the wing from someone other than Drew Holiday. And putting Jimmy Butler alongside someone like Anthony Davis, Andrew Holiday, would create one of the most defensive gauntlets in the NBA. That defensive gauntlet would probably rival the buzzsaw that is the Utah Jazz when they're fully healthy. And that's saying something. That'd be insane. Um, I think that would have that move if he ended up with the Pelicans would have put them into the top three teams in the West easy. But that didn't happen. The 76ers. They needed someone on the wing who is willing to shoot a jump shot from outside five feet from the hoop. And he would pair alongside Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, creating the East's best defensive big three. Offense, you know, you can mix it up with several other teams. I think Milwaukee's probably got the best big three at the top in terms of offense with Bledsoe, Giannis, and Chris Middleton. But in terms of defense, the Philadelphia 76ers with Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, and Jimmy Butler... Hands down the best defensive big three. The Rockets, they were apparently willing to part with three to four first-round picks, P.J. Tucker and Eric Gordon. That is a massive, massive package that, personally, I would have taken because you look at the contracts that the Houston Rockets have, those draft picks in a couple years are going to be pretty valuable. Um, the Pelicans, they didn't want to put Drew Holiday on the table, even though that's what Minnesota wanted, but they were apparently willing to trade draft picks and Nicole Miritich, Miritich being a very solid two-way player, 3 and D guy. He was very surprisingly good down the stretch last year after being traded from the Bulls. The thing, though, with those two teams is that no matter how good their offers were, 
the Timberwolves weren't going to trade him to a Western Conference team. And the reason for that is they didn't want to trade him to a team that would become significantly better with him on the roster while they are trying to compete for the playoffs for the next five years. That's just a bad business decision. (laughs) They just made the playoffs for the first time in 18 years last year. Trading Jimmy Butler to a team in the West could bring back another long drought because the West is just packed with good teams and they were already dug pretty deep into a hole this year. And then negotiations with the Miami Heat fell through at the start of this year and that's why the 76ers ended up landing the star player, Jimmy Butler. The Sixers, they sent Robert Covington, Dario Saric, a 2022 second-round pick, and uh, one other guy, I can't remember his name. He's not that important. Um, They sent him to Minnesota for Jimmy Butler and Justin Patton, and that was the trade. The Sixers obviously got better because anytime you are on the side of a trade where you receive the player that the trade is named by, you win the trade. And I know that's a big jumble of words, and it's probably not the best way of saying that, but, I mean, let's put it like this. No one says that Cleveland won the Kyrie Irving trade. They lost the best player. The trade is named the Kyrie Irving trade, and when you send that player away, odds are you lost the trade. No one says OKC lost the Paul George trade. They got the big-name player. Yeah, they shipped away Victor Oladipo, but he was never going to work alongside Russell Westbrook, and that trade is still called the Paul George trade, not the Victor Oladipo trade. And Yeah, (laughs) I think that's a pretty good way of explaining it. But... I don't think people are going to go on to say that the Sixers lost the Jimmy Butler trade. I think they made a smart trade. I think this will help them compete in the in the East for the next four or five years. What the Sixers did, in essence here, is they effectively dropped the guillotine on their old way of life. The quote-unquote process is now dead. It has become a championship window. That championship window is now wide open. But who knows how long that'll last. They traded away important pieces on their team for a star, which is necessary to win in the end. A formula can get you close. A formula meaning putting up 53s a game with everybody getting involved, everyone shooting threes like the Houston Rockets did last year. But stars put you over the top. And the same thing applies in all sports. Remember this. Billy Bean has never won a World Series. So who they sent away? Pretty t- Robert Covington and Darius Sarwich are two pretty important pieces. Dar- or Robert Covington this season was averaging 11.3 points per game, 5.2 rebounds per game, and 1.1 assists, shooting 42% from the field and 39% from three. Perfect 3 and D guy for any contending team right there. He's a great shooter, they, and he was on a very good contract as well. And the Dario Sarwich, 11.1 points per game, 6.6 rebounds per game, 2.0 assists, 36.4% shooting from the field and 30% from three. So obviously he's having a rough year shooting the ball, but it's just I think it's just a slow start. His career averages are well above all those percentages. Um, but yeah, both these players were key parts of the quote-unquote process. Covington as an effective 3 and D player and Sarich as a forward who could effectively stretch the floor. Jimmy Butler makes up for the loss of those two in terms of total scoring. What do they combine to average... 22 points per game. Jimmy Butler averages like 23, 24 points per game. So he makes up for that in terms of scoring. But they still gave up one of the two real shooters that they had on their team for a guy in Jimmy Butler who isn't all that effective from behind the three-point line. They still have J.J. Redick, so they still have a very solid shooter. And they're looking to add more shooters from the buyout market or via trade. Kyle Korver, who's been on, who's on the Cavs and probably should have been traded before the season started, is apparently on their radar. 
And so is a guy, uh, Contavious Caldwell Pope with the Lakers, but I don't know how they get him because I think he has a no, no trade clause. But regardless, and he's on the Lakers. Um, the other thing for the Philadelphia 76ers is that they added another ball-dominant star. And this is probably the biggest area of concern here with this trade for me. Ben Simmons, their point guard, is a point guard whose brilliance comes from running the floor in transition and being a great passer. He can't shoot. He can't shoot from outside 10 feet, but he can't shoot in general. Um, so he can't spot up for you. He can't. He has to be in charge of the ball because otherwise he's not providing very much um, for you in terms of the offensive scheme. Joel Embiid, their big man, he's a big who, who, could, who can work off the ball. He can spot up. But letting him work with the ball has proven to be very effective and has turned him into, right now, probably one of the top two MVP favorites in the league. Um, and then you add in a guy like Jimmy Butler, needs the ball to score. He is a ball-dominant player and has been for his entire career, and I don't really see that changing unless all of a sudden he's willing to adapt and change because he is going to be a free agent after this season, and he needs, he needs a contract, so he needs to try to fit in. Um, and then another issue with this team that could arise is a chemistry problem because, as we all know, Jimmy Butler's last two teams, and he's only been on two teams outside of the Sixers at this point, so all those teams, have been a total chemistry disaster by the time they were done. And it's already been reported and speculated that Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid are the two stars of the Sixers. They don't love playing with each other. It's been reported they aren't best friends. They're just teammates. They're just professionals. They're just playing together because they're contractually obligated to. But Ben Simmons is represented by Clutch Sports, LeBron's agency, which has become famous for getting players paid and out of their current situations. Basically, what I'm getting at, and we can call this reckless spe- <laughs> reckless speculation for me, and just <laughs> I have no sources or anything. This is, this is just me thinking of things out of the top of my head just because I think it could happen theoretically, is that this whole situation might not work out. The chemistry might be too much. I mean, in their first game together, they got blown up by the Orlando Magic. And the Magic are bad this year. I mean, they won their second game, which was today. Um, and they're wearing their sweet new jerseys today, the Prince Purple City jerseys. They won against the Portland Trailblazers, 112-96. to But their first game, they got killed by the Magic. So I think that if this whole chemistry doesn't work out, this could lead to Simmons leaving. And you know who he'd play with? I think he'd go play with LeBron in L.A. LeBron is friends with Simmons. He calls him the Fresh Prince to LeBron's king. Um, And they basically are... Simmons is basically LeBron's mini-me, if we're being real with it. (laughs) Except he can't shoot. Um, And normally I don't buy into L.A. or the LeBron hype, but these guys have a relationship. And Simmons is basically, if you think about it, a souped-up Lonzo ball without a jumper. But even though he doesn't have that jumper, he makes up for that with his defense and passing, which are light years ahead of Lonzo Ball, who's already a great defender and passer. Um, but yeah, the Timberwolves, I think they won today too. The Timberwolves are 3-0. and Wait, the Timberwolves played the Blazers today. They won 116-96, to or 112-96 today. They are 3-0 and since the trade. The Sixers, they won their second game. They beat the Jazz 113-107. to But... The Timberwolves are not 2-0 after the trade. And the thing is, they look pretty fun. They look like they're playing well. Carl Anthony Towns has actually looked good in three games. Andrew Wiggins looked really good to close out their, la- their 
second to last game against the Pelicans. So all in all, I think this might have helped them get to where they needed to go and just proves my point that maybe, and when I say maybe, I mean you absolutely should have just trade, just done this, just traded Jimmy Butler when he asked to be traded. Why even bother trying to hold on to him? It was just a dumb biz, it was just a dumb decision. There's no real upside there. It just ruined the chemistry of your team for ten games and put you in a massive hole. I don't I don't remember who said this quote. It might have been Yogi Berra, but I'm not sure. It gets late fast out there. And it gets late fast in the West. The Western Conference is loaded. It's just how it is. So all in all, I think the Sixers definitely got better. I think they're a top four team in the East. I think they were before. I think they still have issues they need to address, like they need more shooting. But I think they definitely got better. I think this I think the Timberwolves got better as well. Just simply addition by subtraction because Butler had just turned that thing into a chemistry disaster and then they added shooters. Or a shooter and then a player who can stretch the floor. And is a pretty solid um, stretch forward in Darius Harge. But that's all I want to say about that because there are more important things to talk about and things that you came here for like the Kevin Durant, Draymond Green fiasco. So earlier this week when the Warriors and Clippers were playing over this last weekend... The Warriors were down by a lot early in the game without Stephen Curry, who was injured with a strained abductor, which is in his groin. But they came back all the way to tie the game, and they had the ball with like six seconds left in regulation. Draymond Green grabbed the defensive rebound and was pushing up the floor. Instead of passing the ball to Kevin Durant, who was very clearly calling for the ball because he wanted to try to end the game by himself. Now, before I go and describe everything, I'm sure you've seen the video. It's been widely circulating for a whole week now, but in case you haven't, which is very unlikely, here's this. So, Draymond grabbed the rebound, pushing the ball up the floor. Kevin Durant won the ball. He's clapping. He's getting mad. Um, But what basically happened was that Draymond Green tried to push the pace. He was looking to make a play, but he ended up turning the ball over and fell down as time expired. And then the Warriors, they went on to lose in overtime. But more important than that, Draymond and KD got into a heated argument between OT and the end of the game in which Draymond called KD a bitch and talked about how he didn't like how he's handling his pending free agency. And then also in an article that came out, I think it was two days ago, or it might have been yesterday, by uh, someone at Yahoo Sports, I can't remember the name. Uh, Draymond Green said, we just leave now, just pack up and go now. We won without you. We can win without you again. Um... And that apparently is what really made Kevin Durant upset. Not the bitch thing or saying that he was upset with how he was handling free agency, but that he acknowledged the fact that the Warriors won without him and could probably still win without him in the future. But the argument then spilled over to the locker room after the game and it was reportedly one of the quote-unquote most intense moments of this Golden State uh, era. Draymond was eventually spot suspended for the next game without pay, so he lost about 130 k and the Warriors won that game. But afterwards, when Durant was taking questions, he still appeared to be pretty annoyed and upset. So, a lot has been made about this story, and I think it is definitely a big deal. But I think at the same time, the demise of the Golden State Warriors as we know them feels a little overstated. First of all, yeah, KD will probably leave after this season. There's no reason to be just hopelessly optimistic here. Let's be realistic. I'm a realist. He is probably leaving. This is the NBA. This is the league where the saying, when there's smoke, there's fire, is the most accurate. 
I mean, obviously, we can still hold out hope as Warriors fans and say that he's going to stay in the, these past three years of one-plus-one deals was to let the Warriors get his full bird rights so they can give him the Supermax contract, which is about 40 to $50 million more than any other team can give him. But I think that's unlikely. I think he's probably leaving. I feel like he's probably unsatisfied with all the fact that people still hate on him even after he's been there for two years, two and a half years now, or two and a quarter years now, and he's already won two championships with two finals MVPs. I feel like he hasn't found the validation that he's looking for, and that's fine. I understand if he wants to move on for that exact reason. But I also understand Draymond Green's frustration. Who wouldn't be frustrated in that position? Ever since last season, Warriors fans, Warriors players, everybody who likes the NBA, everyone who doesn't like the NBA, has to wake up to rumors, billboards about Kevin Durant's next destination. And KD, he's done nothing to stop these rumors or ignore them. Last year, the same thing happened with LeBron, except LeBron said right away, I'm not going to talk about any of this. I'm focused on the season. KD hasn't done that. So I understand very much frustration there. KD almost seems like he embraces these rumors, which is his right to do so. It's his free agency. When, it, when it's all said and done right now, he is the most powerful man in the NBA because he will be the marquee free agent this upcoming summer, and he's the second best player in the league right now. So it's obviously a big deal. So if he wants to play this out the way he does, so be it. No one's going to change his mind. But with Draymond Green, especially him, I understand how it could be particularly frustrating. He took less money on his last contract so they could go get a big free agent. Then that free agent was KD. And they gave him a lot of money so they could get him to come to the Warriors. And KD, he won't commit to staying long-term, and he keeps signing these one-plus-one deals and doesn't deny any free agency rumors or tell, or just tell the reporters or anybody that he won't take any questions about him. He's not going to talk about it. He hasn't done that. If the, it, Think about it like this. Imagine you are back in high school, and prom season is in full swing. Prom is a month away. So, you ask your dream date early. You ask the the hottest girl in school early. They agree, because you asked so early, you were the first one in there, and you did it in a great way. They agree. You have a great time during all the pictures beforehand. You have a great dinner. You go to a nice restaurant. Everything's great. But when you actually get to the dance, and you get to the dance floor, that person is being eyed by several other people, and she's flirting with them, she's doing whatever, who, who chose to go maybe without a date, or they went with their friends. But you got to go with her because you got there first. And instead of her being like, nah, I'm with the guy who took me here, they're like, yeah, I might dance with you later instead of my date. Who knows? That'd be a little frustrating, no? I think it'd be extremely frustrating. But just as a Warriors fan, not trying to put myself in Draymond's perspective here, as a Warriors fan, I know how frustrating and exhausting it is to hear about Katie's potential destinations, people making billboards for him, and the fact that he's done nothing to slow down the presses with this, slow down the rumors, just put a stop to it. I almost imagine that with Draymond, it's like you are in a relationship or friendship, and you have this feeling that it's reaching its conclusion so you just blow up, blow it up, or distance yourself, or just just ruin their relationship beforehand, so they can't do it. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I understand his frustration. I would be frustrated about all of this too, 
But I also understand that in professional sports, you can never talk about another guy's money or contract. It's a serious unwritten rule in any sport. And that's what Draymond did. He talked about the fact that Katie's a free agent and he can just go. He can just go. He, they won without him and whatever. It cut him deep. Here's another thing, though. I understand all those rumors and you can do whatever you want. You can speculate. Who cares? The Warriors will still win the championship this season and I will enjoy that until, until the end. Here's the thing. With all this happening, more rumors that are completely, or not completely, but somewhat unrelated are swirling around. And that is that the Warriors need to trade Draymond because they would rather have Kevin Durant and they need to appease Durant. First of all, I understand how you could get to that conclusion based from a, from a basic logistical standpoint. He's a, Draymond Green is a, best, is a great defender, but he's going to be a free agent in a year and a half. He isn't a great offensive player outside of passing, so why not trade him now before what talent he has diminishes, before he becomes not worth the contract he has? You could also say that the cost of losing Draymond Green might be worth it if you get to keep Kevin Durant. I mean, just purely based on a historical standpoint, you'd rather have Kevin Durant, a MVP, a two-time finals MVP, than Draymond Green. Here's the thing. When Draymond went off on KD, he said many things. But one thing was a 100% unequivocally correct. The Warriors did win before KD got there. And a big reason for that was Draymond Green. This isn't me ragging on Kevin Durant. This is just a big reason that they did win before KD got there was Draymond Green. The reason that the Warriors have the most deadly lineup in the league with their death lineup is because of his versatility. Trading him would be a massive, massive mistake because he is the heart and soul of this team. KD might be the best overall player in terms of sheer talent, sheer God-gifted ability. He might be the best overall player. Stephen Curry is the most important. He is the engine that makes the team go and the glue that holds it together. Klay Thompson exemplifies Warriors basketball with his unselfishness, energy, and effort on both ends. But Draymond Green is a completely different animal. He is the heart of the team, the thing that gets all the blood pumping. He is the man on the big Viking ship that is pounding the drum. Boom, boom, and that's when they just row and row and go forward. He's that guy. When he is locked in, there's nothing that anyone can do to stop the Warriors. He was drafted by the team. He's been there his whole career. He loves the Bay. He is he is Warriors basketball. He is their heart. And listen, it it really all boils down to this. The reason why you can't trade Draymond other than the fact that he's the heart and soul of this team. It all boils down to this. Every single team in the NBA is looking for a lockdown defender who can defend any position one through five while also being a jack-of-all-trades on offense, being able to run the floor, dish out a pass, and occasionally hit a shot from the perimeter. Every team in the league is looking for that. All teams in the league are looking for a man that allows them to play small and fast because of their versatility. They are looking for Draymond Green. They are looking for their own version of Draymond Green. 
The Warriors, they have him. They have the original. They have the guy who everyone is looking for. And you have to protect that at all costs. Look, the whole reason people thought the Houston Rockets had a chance last year was because people thought that P.J. Tucker could neutralize Draymond because he thought they, they, people thought they would cancel each other out and then the Rockets' shooting abilities would take over. The Raptors, a big reason why people think they're going to be so successful this year outside of the pairing of Kyle Lowry and uh, Kawhi Leonard, is how Pascal Siakam has developed into a player similar to Draymond Green. But the thing is with Draymond is you can't trade him to another team looking for that piece because you never know in the NBA when you're truly one piece away if that one piece is a Draymond Green type player. So who knows? You can get a massive package in return for Draymond, but you could trade him to the to a team that you didn't even know was a Draymond Green type player away from title contention and then they have that edge because they have him. So it's just not worth it. Just keep him. He's the heart and soul of your team. Reward the loyalty that he has given you and because he is the player that 30 teams in this NBA dream of having, but you are lucky enough to have. But the rumors are out there now. It's been crazy. Um, but I think it was yesterday they played in Houston. On Thursday, before they played Houston, the Houston Rockets, uh, Draymond Green and KD, they walked in a shoot-around together. They high-fived. They fist-bumped. Uh, and before Draymond Green left the shoot-around, oh, and they have talked, by the way. They've talked several times since then. It's been on camera. I'm sure it's been off-camera. But after the shoot-around, before Houston, Draymond said this, and this is a a statement he gave, and I'm just going to read the whole thing. He said this, quote, "Um, I'm going to speak on this one time and one time only. With what happened a few nights ago, Kevin and I spoke. We are moving forward. I am. I don't think there's a secret that I am an emotional player. I wear my emotions on my sleeve, and I play with that same emotion. Sometimes it gets the best of me and doesn't work in my favor. I'm going to live with that. Because it works to my favor, in the good, as my resume speaks and my team's resume speaks, more so than it doesn't. I'm never going to change who I am. I'm going to approach the game the same way I always do, and we're going to continue to move forward. I've read read a lot about, oh, is this the end of the run? Or is it over? Or did I ruin it? Or did I force Kevin to leave? You know, at the end of the day, as I've said before, whatever Kevin decides to do, Whatever Clay decides to do, whatever who decides to do, we had great years together. I support everybody wholeheartedly, 100%, because as a man, as a human being, you've got the right to do what you want with your life. I never question that. But what you must know, nobody in this organization, from a player, not myself, not Kevin, not anybody else, is going to beat us. So, if you wanted them, other 29 teams in the league, you gotta beat us. We're not going to beat us. We're going to continue to do what we do. I'm sorry if that ruins everybody's stories. I know everybody's got a job to do. I apologize for ruining y'all's stories, if it did. But this only makes Kevin, myself, and the rest of my teammates stronger. And that's what it's going to do. You think you saw something before? Good luck with us now. We're not going to crumble off of an argument. We're going to move forward. That's all I got to say. Anyone want to talk about basketball? If I'm here. If not, it's been real. End quote. That's a pretty powerful statement, right? I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was pretty elegant. And apparently Draymond looks like he's done talking about the matter, which is I think is good, at least publicly. Just put it all behind you, move on. 
so yeah, it looks like Draymond's moved on, and I think it's just a matter of time before Kevin Durant eventually moves on, before he gets over this. But in the end, they will get along on the court. I fully expect them to get along on the court. They are professionals. They just want to play basketball. They want to win a championship. Um, and at the end of the day, this is team sports. Teammates fight. People can get cussed out. It happens all the time. I've been playing sports for my entire life and have been in more arguments, been MF'd by more people than I can count. But at the end of the day, it ends up strengthening that bond down the line. I mean, the closest relationships I've had in sports have sometimes been the most contentious. And that's just how it goes. It's just an intense... uh, Sports is intense, regardless. you got a bunch of testosterone, a bunch of guys. This is how it goes. These guys are alpha dogs. So there's obviously going to be just clashes with each other like this. And it happens in any sport at any level, really. I mean, I think the first time me and, like, my teammates got MF'd by, like, I don't know, a coach was, like, when I was, like, 11 or 12 in Little League. And, yeah, it shook us at the time, but it ended up being fine. And that's just, I know it's a silly example because I was 12. But I think either I've MF'd somebody, someone's MF'd me, a coach MF'd our entire team. Probably on every team I've ever been on since I was, like, 11. So, <laughs> Uh, it didn't diminish my love for the sport. It didn't diminish my love for my teammates or anything like that. I think it, it'll be fine. Draymond Green explodes like this several times a year. Uh, so in the end, I don't think it's that big a deal. I think it'll eventually just blow over. We're in game 13. There's not been a whole lot of stories so far this season, so it obviously seems like a bigger deal. And with that said, I'm not going to talk about this until the next episode of the podcast. Because <laughs> I've had a week of just like worrying, thinking about Kevin Durant leaving and all that, and thinking about Draymond Green potentially getting traded. And it's just not fun to think about for a Warriors fan who just wants to enjoy a dynasty. So I'm moving on. And this is our last topic about the NBA coming up. And it is about LeBron James's new milestone. Look, I know I rag on LeBron a lot, but even though. I have been critical of him and sometimes have reveled in his failure in the finals and whatever. It is important to give him credit where credit is due. It is important to do that for anybody. On Wednesday night, LeBron James moved into the top five scorers in NBA history. He passed the legendary Wilt Chamberlain in total points. And I thought it only made sense to look at his overall legacy right now and how people will look at him in the future. There isn't a doubt in my mind or I think in anyone's mind, really, maybe besides my mom, that LeBron James is one of the three greatest basketball players to have ever walked on the earth. His position in that top three can be debated, but he belongs in that group. When it's all said and done, even if his numbers do begin to decline in this season and the upcoming seasons, he will probably end his career as the all-time leader in a majority of the categories for individual stats in the NBA. As of right now, he's 3-6 and six in the NBA Finals, and while losing more finals than you've won isn't necessarily a great thing. In fact, I wouldn't even say isn't necessarily a great thing. It's not a great thing. He still made it there eight times in a row these last eight years, which is incredible, completely unprecedented. He has three NBA Finals MVPs, which is elite. And he has four regular season MVPs, which is also elite. He's had an unprecedentedly long run at the peak of his powers. Also, let me take a quick break here. I just said unprecedentedly, and I didn't mess it up like I did that last time. I think that deserves a five-star rating in this, in this podcast. That word, I didn't even know if I was going to be able to say it when I wrote it down. And I, I practiced saying it in the mirror for like five minutes. It's just, 
I deserve a five-star rating. So please do that. Let me get back to it. LeBron James has had an unprecedentedly long run at the peak of his powers. Now for me, when I'm looking at overall legacy of players and their overall impact on the game in any sport, I look at it from more of a narrative perspective than I do a statistical perspective. Yes, statistics are still important, but I think narratives and the whole story of someone's career and how they impacted the future of the game is perhaps just as important as the counting stats, as the total accomplishments. When I look at Michael Jordan and his legacy, I don't look at just the fact that he was 6-0 with six MVPs in the finals or look at all his awards or statistics. I look at something else. I look at his impact on future generations, future disciples, look at things like shoe sales, all of that. With Jordan, you had a player that not only was the standard for all-time greatness in the NBA when he was playing, but he also was the biggest inspiration for young kids and players and the just the biggest inspiration that the NBA had seen at that point. I think their most successful marketing campaign to date when he was playing was the Be Like Mike stuff and the poster with wings, with Jordan or whatever. Kids wanted to be like Mike. And eventually the players who learned to play like him rose to superstardom after him in the NBA. And perhaps that was never more prominent than with another NBA legend in Kobe Bryant. There's no denying Kobe's all-time greatness from a sheer talent perspective, but essentially he was a light version of Michael Jordan. Kobe ended up with more total points, but he only had five total titles to Jordan's six. But then with Kobe's success and seeing his play style work on the highest levels like it did with Jordan, stretching over two generations, Jordan's playing the late 80s to late 80s to late 90s, to Kobe playing in the late 90s to 2016. But you see his play style be very similar to Jordan, and that inspired a whole nother generation of players. So that legacy is still moving on. You've got Kobe, who was the real number one disciple of Jordan. And then after that, you've got guys who are modeling their games after Kobe. you got guys like Jason Tatum, who looks like a young Kobe. You've got Zach Levine, who's playing like Kobe and MJ this season. The point I'm trying to make here is that when I look at all-time greatness, you have to also look at the overall impact on the history of the game of basketball, the future of the game of basketball. It's my same criteria for thinking about someone making the Hall of Fame in any sports other than their sheer counting numbers and their stats. My thoughts are, can you tell the story of this sport without mentioning this guy? Can you tell the story of basketball without mentioning Michael Jordan? Can you tell the story of baseball without mentioning Barry Bonds? And then also, how did this player impact the future of the game? And I know I just talked about how LeBron or how Mike, MJ and Kobe had their disciples and how that play style is still going on and all that. And their overall impact on the future of the game and how they affected play styles has completely changed the league. But with LeBron, you've got a totally different animal. And no, this isn't a bad thing. I'm not ragging on him. He has the court vision of Magic Johnson, the scoring ability of Wilt Chamberlain, Kobe, of all the great scorers, and then the pure athleticism of a cross between a Puma and a freight train. He has no disciples. He has no one that plays like him. Sure, people are fans of him. Players are fans of him. 
They can try to do things that he can't do. And this necessarily isn't a bad thing, so don't jump all over me for this yet. His game is just as hard to replicate as anybody's ever. He just isn't that relatable as a basketball player because of how unique that is. And again, this isn't a bad thing. We now have someone who might look like he could be the first real LeBron disciple coming out of Duke this year in Zion Williamson, but who knows? Calling someone a LeBron disciple is hard because those are some massive shoes to fill. We might be looking at the greatest overall player to ever play the game. I think Jordan's still the best player, but Michael Jordan or LeBron James might be the best overall player to play the game. LeBron has absolutely impacted the game while he was playing it, but his style of play hasn't necessarily forced the league to change or bend in a way that it was fundamentally played. And that's not necessarily his fault, and I'm not taking away from his all-time greatness. I'm just saying. You can look at other players right now, like Stephen Curry, and his ability to shoot the three, and that has made the league look completely different than it did even five years ago. You look at Michael Jordan and how players like Kobe Bryant modeled themselves after him, and then you look at all the players who modeled themselves after Kobe. You had a whole train of that. We actually, we might be starting to see the first generation of Curry disciples now, with Trey Young coming out of, being at the forefront of that, and he's looked pretty good for Atlanta. LeBron fits into a category with players who are unlikely to have many true disciples, and that's rare and unique in himself, in itself. You could theoretically say that he, in himself, is a disciple of Magic Johnson's playstyle, but he has changed it and made it a whole new, nearly irreplaceable or irreplicable style of play. Anyways, I got sidetracked. I think LeBron's legacy right now is at its peak. I think this is as high as people can possibly think about him. I think it's unlikely that he wins more than one more championship, and I think that Saying he wins another championship is a stretch. It's definitely a reach. But he will continue to pile up personal stats, accolades, and achievements. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. He's now in sole possession of the fifth most points in NBA history. And he will likely pass Michael Jordan within a year. In my mind, Jordan will still be above LeBron in total greatness, though, because of that immortal 6-0 and record in the finals. That perfect 6-for-6. Six six and his impact on the future of the game. With LeBron and what he's done on the court and off the court are both incredibly impressive, and he has been forever solidified as a top three player to ever play the game. His play style is so unique because of his physical attributes and his abilities that make it so highly unlikely that we will see anybody like him ever again. So earlier when I said that I look at the overall impact of each player on the future of the game and how their game breeds lookalikes, and how that's always a sign of all-time greatness, but with LeBron, he goes the other way. So he's greatness not in that way. He's all the counting stats. He's got all that. But he plays in a way that's so unlikely to be seen again that it makes me want to take a step back and just appreciate him while he's here because he's not going to be here forever. He's not going to be playing the league forever. But he's so unique, and I don't think it's likely we're ever going to see anybody who plays like him ever again. He's in a category by himself. And now that he's the fifth greatest scorer of all time, he's officially making his all-out assault on the record boards and leaderboards of all-time NBA history. And that's something that should be appreciated. Now, with all that being said, I'm still firmly entrenched in the hashtag Steph Better camp. 
But that's besides the point right now. LeBron just became the fifth all-time scorer, scorer, and that should be celebrated. And that's where I'm going to end the NBA section of today's podcast. Um, All right. So with that being said, let's just quickly talk about what happened in the NFL last week in Week 10, because Week 11 has already started. started yesterday, and it's going to continue in a day because it's going to be posted on a Saturday. Um, so let's quickly run down, I think, the three biggest stories from Week 10. First, is the NFC North up for grabs? Of all the divisions in the NFL, the only division where there doesn't appear to be a clear-cut favorite is the NFC North. The NFC has three divisions that appear to already be set. The Rams stand alone atop the West, the Saints are running away with the South, and the Redskins are the only team above 500 in the East. In the North, though, this thing is intense. I-N-T-E-N-S-E, intense. The Minnesota Vikings came into this year with one of the most well-rounded rosters in professional football. And then they added Kirk Cousins, who is an undeniable upgrade over Case Keenum, who they had last year. They haven't been as great as I thought they would be, but they still have a 5-3-1 record and appear to be heating up down the stretch. The team that's atop this division, though, is not the Vikings, and it's one that I didn't see coming. It's the Chicago Bears. The Bears are currently 6-3 and and have the third-best point differential in the NFC and the fourth-best in the NFL, only behind the Chiefs, Rams, and Saints. They appear to have arrived, and arrived early. Now, heading into the season, this was something I didn't expect or prepare for. I thought Mitch Trubisky was an average quarterback at best, and I thought their defense would be good, but I didn't think it would be enough to carry their mediocre slash below average offense. That has not been the case, and I'm not afraid to admit that I was 100% wrong there. The Bears' offense has been mediocre in terms of total yards and yards per game, but they are fifth in points per game. They have totally outperformed my expectations on offense, and a big part of that is Mitchell Trubisky, who has quietly had a great year. I didn't think he was great coming out of college, and I didn't understand why he was getting all the draft hype. But this year, he has a 65.5% completion percentage with 2,305 yards, 19 touchdowns, and 7 picks. He's thrown for 300 yards or more four times, which is impressive given that many people have had questions about his true throwing abilities. Now, the only offense, or not only has their offense been better than expected, though, but their defense has been absurd. Their defense is ridiculous. Their defense is impenetrable. Their defense is bulletproof. Their defense wants to eat your heart and eat your children. They're tied for fifth in the NFL with 30 sacks, and now all four teams above them are tied for first with 31, so they're up there. They lead the league in interceptions with 16, and three of those were pick sixes, which also leads the league. There's the second in terms of forced fumble with 16. That's incredible. Their addition of Khalil Mack this offseason has proven to be the move of the year, maybe the move of the decade, as he has turned this defense into a immovable object, and they have yet to be tested against a true unstoppable force. The Vikings are still good. Don't get me wrong. Their offense has been better. Their offense has better weapons. And their defense isn't that much worse than theirs. This division is going to be the best race of the year. And the best part of that is that these two teams haven't played yet. They played for the first time this week, and then they do it again in the last week of the year. 
And then, of course, you also can't forget about the Packers, who are now 4-5-1 and one after losing yesterday. But they have Aaron Rodgers. But regardless of that, this still feels like a two-horse race. Um, but over the past weekend, the Bears beat the Lions 34-22. Trubisky completed 23 of 30 passes for 355 yards, three touchdowns, and no interceptions. He also ran in a touchdown with his legs. So he accounted for four touchdowns on the leg on the day. Uh, they still have their dynamic rushing attack with Jordan Howard and Tariq Cohen. And Allen Robinson, their big-name wide receiver they signed this offseason, appears to have turned a corner. The Vikings had a bye week this past week, but they so they should be well-prepared for their matchup with the Bears on Sunday. The point is here, or the point here is, the Chicago Bears appear to be firing on all cylinders. And the two matchups down the stretch for the Minnesota Vikings should be absolutely incredible, and the first of which comes this Sunday. So check that out on Sunday. Uh, Next, Cowboys versus Eagles happened this week, and I think that has pretty big implications for the NFC East in the playoff picture. The Dallas Cowboys have been disappointing this season. Many analysts thought that Dak Prescott would return to his first-year self after last year's dramatic, disappointing season. And that has not been the case. He's been very mediocre. He appears to be a quarterback that was deserving of a fifth of a fourth round pick. Heading into this week, they were three and five. The Philadelphia Eagles are in the midst of one of the worst Super Bowl hangovers in recent memory. Despite adding pieces this offseason and at the trading deadline, they can't seem to put it together, and they were four and four heading into this week. Or heading into the game against the Cowboys. Uh, both teams are looking up in their division at the Washington Redskins. And that's somehow <laughs> a thing, despite the fact that the average age of a player in Washington is 55. Dallas and Philadelphia were both playing a must-win game, but it doesn't really feel like either team won. The game finished with the Cowboys on top, 27-20, to but the implications from this game on both sides aren't great for either team. The Cowboys won this game in score but they still showed some ineffectiveness in the red zone. Dak looked as good as he ever had, but he only threw for 270 yards and a touchdown. The reality with this Cowboys team is that they go as Ezekiel Elliott goes, and he went on Sunday. He had 151 yards and a touchdown, but he also, and he also had 36 yards and another touchdown through the air. He was their offense, but the problem with Dallas is this. As long as Ezekiel Elliott keeps winning them games the better he makes Dak look in the eyes of Jerry Jones, who for some reason has already committed to giving him a long-term extension. First of all, that's not a great negotiating tactic. Secondly, Dak isn't a top-tier quarterback in this league. He's been the beneficiary of the best offensive line in football during his first year, and then he also has a top-five running back in the league, so he's being made better by his team. Take last year, for example. They had a first-place schedule, but without Ezekiel Elliott for much of the year and with injuries to their offensive line, Dak was bad. So with each win Dallas gets now, and as they appear to inch closer to a playoff spot, don't worry, they aren't getting there. They're just inching closer. It's just not going to happen. That just delays the inevitable, that they need to draft a quarterback who isn't reliant on a running game to make him look good. The Eagles, the adversaries of the Cowboys in this game, They just went all-in at the trade deadline and acquired Golden Tate, who is one of the best yards-after-catch receivers in the NFL 
to add to an already potent offensive attack. They couldn't beat the offensively challenged Cowboys, though, and this Super Bowl hangover is officially a problem. This team is in serious danger from missing the playoffs altogether because the NFC is loaded. And unless Alex Smith and the Redskins slow down, there's no real chance for an NFC East team to secure a wildcard spot. So, while I think this game was a do-or-die for both teams, I think that both these teams are still dead. This was a die-or-die, regardless of the final outcome. The Eagles lost to the Cowboys, who are bad, and they have to play the Saints this week, who are great. The Cowboys won the game, but they still don't look great and are getting closer to handing Dak Prescott a $125 million contract. And then also... This is the next. This is the next and final story here. We need to have a conversation about the Pittsburgh Steelers. <clears throat> After starting the season with a one-two and one record, many people wrote off the Steelers, including me. I said and believed that the end had come for the Steelers, and it was either going to be the Ravens or the Browns taking the NFC North this year. Now that shows you how just fucking dumb I am <laughs> when I'm talking about the NFL. In professional football here, I said the Browns could seriously win this division. So, about that, they started 1-2-1, and one, and now their record is 6-2-1. They've won five straight games and have looked absolutely lethal while doing it. I thought Big Ben was done and was clearly on the downswing, but he now has a 66.1% completion percentage, 2,888 yards, 21 touchdowns, and 7 interceptions. He's still the same guy. Their receiving duo of Antonio Brown and Juju Smith-Schuster are as deadly as ever. Brown has 690 yards, nice, and 10 touchdowns in 9 games, while Juju has 762 yards and 3 touchdowns. While those two guys are great, they aren't even the most surprising or impressive part of this offense. That label falls to their running back, and that running back isn't Le'Veon Bell, it's James Conner. Connor has had a better season so far, just rushing the ball, than Le'Veon Bell had at any point in his Steelers career. He's now rushed for 777 yards, 771, 771 yards and 10 touchdowns, while also catching 39 passes for 387 yards and another touchdown. He's been really good, and he makes the loss of Le'Veon Bell that much more tolerable. And with that being said, it was confirmed on Tuesday that Bell didn't report to Steelers by the deadline, and he's now ineligible to play for the rest of the season. He will likely be a free agent next year because franchising him again would pay him like a feudal lord. But Connor's emergence as a top-tier running back has eased the pain of losing Le'Veon, and he, he certainly seems like a more easy guy to de- or an easier guy to deal with at this point. Getting back to this past week, though, the Steelers kept their week rolling by demolishing the Carolina Panthers, who I thought were quietly the hottest team in football. They did more than beat them, though. They did more than demolish them. They picked them apart. They broke them piece by piece. They tore them limb from them, and they ate every piece of meat possible, and by the time they were done, there were nothing but bones left. The Steelers beat the Carolina Panthers, 52 to 21. Big Ben completed 22 of 25 passes for 328 yards and five touchdowns. He missed 
three passes. <coughs> three. For 328 yards and five touchdowns. That's insane. The Steelers, they're back. Back like they never left. Back like a second heart attack. Bars. <laughs> uh, the rest of their teams in their division don't even appear to be in the same atmosphere as them right now. This Steelers team looks like it could finally be the one to get them over the hump after years and years of disappointing finishes. And that's something to be excited about. I think the Steelers team might be the best they've had in the last five years. Uh, and with that being said, uh, that's it for the NFL. And that's all I wanted to talk about today. This has been a long episode of the podcast. My voice is dying. I'm tired. It's a, it's a Friday night. It's 11 p.m. So I'm going to wrap this up right here. This has been episode five of the sportsball.com podcast. If you want to talk to me, you want to get on the podcast, send an email to sportsballmailbag at gmail.com. That's S-P-O-R-T-Z-B-A-L.com or mailbag.com or at gmail.com. I'll link it in the podcast thing. Click on it, send me an email, send me a DM, whatever. You want to be on the podcast, send it to me. I'm out. I'm Jackson Williams. This is sportsball.com podcast. I'll see you later. Peace.